who had a Jewish background, those who had memorized the Ten Commandments and knew the law and had spent most of their lives trying to keep the law, had to be a little bit unraveled at this point because they had heard some pretty shocking statements. They had sat in their pew and heard Paul say in chapter 3, verse 20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. And they heard him say in chapter 5, verse 20, the law came in that sin might increase. And they heard him say in chapter 6 and verse 14, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now those are some pretty radical statements. They shook the foundation of the first century Jew. And they continue to shake the foundation of the religious community in the 21st century. Because most people are legalists. Most people think of religion as a code of ethics, as a creed, as a list of do's and don'ts. You take away the code and what's left? How can you please God apart from the law? How can you be righteous apart from the law? How can you be holy apart from the law? It makes no sense. And unfortunately, many of us, after we've been saved, still operate on that same mentality. We are still legalists. We have come to realize that salvation is by grace through faith, but I'm afraid we haven't really come to realize that sanctification is also by grace through faith. We haven't really grasped Paul's exhortation in Colossians 2.6 when he said, As you therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. I'm saved by grace. I grow by grace. Too many of us are hung up on Galatianism. We're saved by faith, but now we're trying to keep the law. In Galatians 3.2, Paul said, I just want to know one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by works or by faith? And aren't you so foolish to think that having begun by the Spirit, you can now be perfected by the flesh? Some of us just say, God, you just jumpstart me and I'll take it from there. That's not what He wants to do. You see, salvation is by faith apart from the law. And sanctification is by faith apart from the law. And so Paul writes this seventh chapter to defend and to explain some of those radical statements that he has made about the law. He writes this chapter so that we will understand the role of the rule book. In chapter 6, he showed that we're free from sin. Now in chapter 7, he's going to show that we are free from the law. And in verses 1 to 13, we're going to look at that from three angles. We're going to see the reason, the results and the rationale. First of all, the reason we're free from the law in verses 1 to 4. Notice verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Now that's a simple principle. The law applies to a person as long as he lives. The law has authority over someone as long as he lives. Let's assume a fellow sideswipes a car on Broadway. Police officer pulls him over. The police officer is thinking in his mind, I'm going to ticket this guy for careless and imprudent driving. Trollman gets out of the car, and as he gets out of his car, this guy speeds off down Broadway. 
patrolman jumps back in his car and he's thinking to himself now, leaving the scene of an accident. Speeding, oop, running a red light. Guys flying down Broadway, full throttle. He comes down to Water Street. There's a train coming along. He crashes into the train. Boom. Demolishes his car. He's laying on the ground dead. At that point, the law has no more jurisdiction over that man. You see, it would be absurd for the patrolman to come up at that point and say, do you have any idea how fast you were going? I'm going to throw the book at you. I'm going to take you in, buddy. You have the right to remain silent. Now, you see, he's dead. And at that point, the law has no jurisdiction over him. The trial of Lee Harvey Oswald would have been one of the most publicized and dramatic trials in history. But he never made it to the courtroom. And so we never had the trial because the law does not have jurisdiction over a dead man. And that's Paul's simple point in verse 1. And then he gives us an illustration of his own in verses 2 and 3. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress, but... If her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Now, please understand, this is not a comprehensive discussion of divorce and remarriage. So don't make this your proof text. That's not what it's intended to be. This is simply an illustration. And it makes the point that death breaks a legal bond. Marriage is for life. It's not forever. It's not eternal There will be no marriage in heaven. That's why in your vows you say, till death do us part. Death breaks the marriage bond. So Paul says, if a wife marries another while her husband is still alive, the law condemns her as an adulteress. But if she marries another after her husband is dead, the law has nothing to say. She is free. And what's the application? Verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ that you might be joined to another. You see, you were married to the law. The law was your first husband. And it was a difficult marriage. In fact, it was an impossible marriage. You see, you were married to a husband who was dominating, picky, demanding, wouldn't take no for an answer. He was perfect. He was always right. He was never wrong. He would leave a list of things for you to do on the refrigerator every morning. And whenever he came home, he made you feel like a failure. And on top of that, he never lifted a finger to help you. See, that's the way the law is. It doesn't help you become a Christian and it can't help you be a Christian. So the question is, how do you get out of that impossible relationship? And Paul says the only way to get out of that, the only way to break that legal bond is by death. The law has jurisdiction over you as long as you live, but guess what? You died. 
Verse 4 says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. And just as a wife is free from the marriage bond when her husband dies, you are now free from that legal bond. You are now free from the law. Now the question is, what does that freedom mean for you? Well, that's our second point. That's the result of our freedom from the law. And we see that in verses 4 to 6. And here Paul mentions three results. First result, you have a new relationship. Notice verse 4 again. You were made to die to the law through the body of Christ that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. You see, you are free to remarry. And who have you married? You have married Christ. You have a new husband. You have a totally new allegiance. And I'd like you to notice in verse 4 that word another, that you might be joined to another. There are two Greek words for another. One means another of the same kind. That's the word Jesus used when He said, I will send you another comforter talking about the Holy Spirit. And he was saying, I'm going to send you another of the same kind as I am. That's one Greek word. But there's another Greek word that means another of a different kind. And that's the word used here. You see, Paul is saying, your new husband is a totally different kind of husband. He's not like the law. He's not condemning you. He's accepting you. He's not giving you a list of things to do He's given you Himself. This is a marriage of freedom and love. It's not about rules and regulations. It's about a relationship. And that's the first result. We get a new relationship. Second result, you have a new purpose. Notice the end of verse 4. You have been joined to another, to Him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Marriage is designed to be fruitful and multiply. And in keeping with that analogy, Paul says, now that you have a new husband, you are fruitful. And also in keeping with that analogy, he's making the point that this fruit is born out of our union with Christ. You see, you cannot be fruitful without Him. That's why Jesus said in John 15, 5, He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Fruit for God only comes through our relationship with Christ. Fruit for God always comes through our relationship with Christ. It will never happen through regulations. In fact, what kind of fruit did we produce in our relationship with the law? Well, Paul tells us in verse 5, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. My flesh, he's talking about, that is my efforts apart from God, in union with the law, produces what? Fruit for death. Because as he says, The law isn't able to stop my sinful passions. In fact, it actually arouses my sinful passions. And we'll see further a a few verses from now what he means by that. But you know, 
the most familiar passage on fruit bearing is Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And I've, I never hear anybody quote that whole passage. Because it says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Most of us stop right there. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now most of us, if we get that far, we don't realize there's more to the verse. Because you know what the rest of the verse says? It says, against such things, there is no law. Now what does he mean by that? There is no law that can produce this fruit, and there is no law that can prevent this fruit. And he really makes that clear earlier in that passage because he says in Galatians 5.18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You see, we have a new relationship that gives us a new purpose, and that is we are free to do what we had no capacity to do before, and that is bear fruit for God. And then we have a third result, and that is you have a new motivation Verse 6, But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Now, just as we talked about last week, we are not set free to do our own thing. We are set free to serve. You see, when it says we're not under the law, it doesn't mean that God no longer has any standards. God still has His law. God still has His will. God still has His moral standards. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 27, it makes mention of a law of faith. In chapter 8 and verse 2, Paul calls it the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 21, Paul says, I am not under the law, but I am under the law of Christ. You see, God still has His moral standards. They haven't changed. And that's why much of what you find in the Old Covenant is repeated in the New Covenant. In fact, nine of the ten commandments are mentioned again in the New Testament. The one that is not given to us again is what? The Sabbath day. See, God hasn't dropped His morals. In fact, the new covenant actually sets a higher standard. Because what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, you shall not murder your brother with your words. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, you shall not commit adultery in your heart. You see, the New Testament actually raises the bar. It moves beyond my actions to my thoughts and my words. But not only does it give me greater expectations, it also gives me a greater power. And that's why in chapter 8 of Romans and verse Four, Paul says, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, the requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who are believers. 
How? Not by the flesh. Not by us. Not by my flesh trying to keep the law, but he says, by the Spirit fulfilling it in us as we simply walk in Him, walk in His power. And you see, along with that new power, chapter 7 and verse 6 says, we get a new motivation. We serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. We serve God in a new way. It's not a stuffy, old, dead letter. It is a fresh, new, living word. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul gives us some exhortations. He says, lay aside falsehood and speak truth. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Let him who steals, steal no longer. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. He gives us these exhortations, and then he gives us the motivation right after that in verse 30. And you know what the motivation is? Listen carefully. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And that word grieve means to fill with sorrow. Do not fill the Holy Spirit with sorrow. You see, in the New Testament, it's not a regulation thing. It's a relationship thing. I obey God because I don't want to grieve Him because I have a relationship with Him. You see, going back to the illustration of marriage, the lady married to the hard, demanding husband cooks the meals, cleans the house, does the laundry... And all the while, she hates it. And then that husband dies and she marries a guy who loves her, treats her with respect, cares for her needs, is concerned about her welfare, who does all he can to make her life pleasant. And you look at her life and she's still doing a lot of the same things she did before. But her attitude has changed. You see, she's no longer doing it out of fear and guilt and obligation. She's now doing it out of love. And that's our new motivation in our relationship with Christ. So we are free from the law. The reason is you have died. And he spells that out in verse 6. For now we have been released from the law. We are free from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. You are just as free from the law as a dead man is. You see, our law is very careful to protect people from what it calls double jeopardy. If a man commits a murder and is convicted and executed and pronounced dead and they carry him out of the execution room and lay him on a table and he suddenly sits up awake and alert, that fellow is free from the law. The law can't prosecute him again. He has been convicted. He has paid his price. He is free because he was declared dead. You are just as free as that man is. You were convicted of sin. Jesus died in your place. You died with him in essence on the cross and there is no double jeopardy in God's process either. You are just as free as that man. Paul says you are just as free as a woman is in her marriage bond when her husband dies. You are free. The reason is you've died. The result is you have a new relationship. You're no longer married to the law. You're now married to Christ. You have a new purpose. You're no no longer bearing the fruit of death. You are bearing fruit for God. And you have a new motivation. 
You're no longer serving in oldness of the letter. You are now serving in newness of the Spirit. And then that brings us to the third point. And that's the rationale in verses 7 to 13. Notice verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Since all that was produced under the law was the fruit of death, does that mean there's something wrong with the law? Does that mean that the law is sinful? And Paul answers immediately, may it never be. No way. And then he says, on the contrary. And in verses 7 to 13, he's going to give us five things that the law does in relationship to sin. And I want us to see these five things. Number one, the law exposes sin. Notice verse 7. I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, by nature, people have a rather dim awareness of their own sinfulness. Have you noticed this? We're real good at noticing other people's sin, but we have a hard time seeing our own. It's like the mother who told her little son, I've told you a million times not to exaggerate. We have a difficult time seeing our own sin. And so the law is a mirror. It shows me my sin. And Paul uses a a personal illustration here. He says, I was coveting other people's stuff, but I didn't know it until the 10th commandment said, you shall not covet, and then I realized what I was doing. You see, the law shows us our sin. The law exposes our sin. That's the first thing it does. Secondly, the law excites sin. Look at verse 8. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Now, if you walk up to a pond, and it's a nice, clear pond, I mean, you can look in that pond, and you can see the bottom, you can see the fish swimming around. And then you pick up a big stick, and you stick that stick in the, in the pond, and you start stirring it up and, and pushing that stick along the bottom of the pond, and all that mud and slime on the bottom come up, and now the pond's all foggy. Did that stick make the pond muddy? No. See, that stick just revealed what was already in the pond. And that's what the law does. The law doesn't make you sin, but the law stirs up sin in you. You see, Paul says at the end of verse 8, apart from the law, sin is dead. Sin is dormant. Sin is like that clear pond with everything sitting at the bottom. But when the law comes along, what does it do? It stirs up what's already there. Paul says, when I found out about coveting, what happened? I started coveting in every way imaginable. You see, he's saying I was going along. I didn't know it was wrong. When I found out it was wrong, then I said, wow, I haven't tried this and I haven't tried that. And it actually stirred up sin in him. Whoever first said rules were made to be broken understands human nature. 
sin is aroused by the law. Now, we all know how that works. Let me illustrate. I'm going to give you a law. Don't think about green poached eggs. Do not think about green poached eggs. I command you, don't do it. Don't look at these projectors over my head. Don't. Do not, absolutely do not look up there. <laughs> when I was in high school, I had a study hall in, uh, in what is now, I guess, the middle school, but it's the auditorium at the old Central High School. And, the, and the, in the auditorium there, the floor is sloped. And, and we had about 100 students spread out throughout that place. With uh, We were in theater seating. First day, the guy comes in who's leading the study hall, and he says, I've got some rules. Rule number one, don't kick the seat in front of you so it goes boop, 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 boop. Don't do that. And rule number two, no marbles. Now, you can imagine what happened for that whole semester. Boo-boo, boo-boo, boo-boo. He started walking, boo-boo, boo-boo, boo-boo. Throughout the whole study hall period, and then marbles started showing up. They'd be rolled all the way down the floor and bang into the stage. You see, laws arouse sin. Now, if you don't believe that, I want you to go home today, make a sign that says, do not throw eggs at my house. And stick it out in your front yard and let me know what happens. You see, the law excites sin. Third thing it does, the law empowers sin. Verses 9 and 10. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law because, as he said at the end of verse 8, sin was dead. Paul is saying, I thought I was alive. And then the law came along that was supposed to result in life because Leviticus 18.15 says, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. The law came along. I thought it was going to bring life. But instead of bringing me life, what did it do? It brought sin to life, and I died. See, what he's saying is the law came along and it empowered sin. The law provides sin with the power to condemn you and me. And then the fourth thing the law does is it enables sin in verse 11. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it, killed me. Sin uses the law to deceive us and kill us. Now think about that. How did sin deceive Eve? By the commandment. You see, God had given that commandment in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17, you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now if there had been no commandment, 
there could have been no sin. And Paul says, sin takes its opportunity through the law and deceives us. So in that sense, the law enables sin. And then the fifth thing it does is it expands sin in verses 12 and 13. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. What is the conclusion? Is the law sin? No. Paul says the law is holy and righteous and good. It reflects the righteous standards of a holy God. There's nothing wrong with the law. If you go into the mirror and look in the mirror and you look terrible, don't blame the mirror. The law is fine. And then he says in verse 13, Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. You say, but Paul, you said in verse 10 that the law resulted in death, so how can something good result in death? Does does the law... Something good produced death, and he says, may it never be. It can't be. And then he goes on to say, rather it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. Paul says, the law is good, and the true character of sin is revealed in the fact that it can take something which is good, the law, and make it into a means of evil. So in essence, the law expands sin. Or as Paul says at the end of verse 13, it shows how utterly sinful sin is. So is the law sin? No way. The law exposes sin, excites sin, empowers sin, enables sin, and expands sin. It's the big mirror that shows you your sin. It's the stick that stirs up your sin. It's the book that gets thrown at you and condemns you. And that's why it's so exciting to be able to say with confidence, I have died to the law. I am free from the law. And I am now joined to the risen Christ. I serve in newness of the Spirit and I bear fruit for God. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You for this passage that shows us our relationship to the law. And Father, I thank You that in Jesus Christ we have died to that old way And we have now a new relationship with a new husband. We are the bride of Christ. And Father, I pray that You would help us understand this morning the new motivation You've given us to serve You out of newness of the Spirit. And Father, I pray that that fruit which You want to produce in us might be evident in both our lives individually and collectively as a church as we serve, honor, and glorify You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.